1971, a Sri Lankan Sufi arrived in Philadelphia to address a group of spiritual seekers. This trip initiated the career of one of the most influential teachers in the history of North American Sufism. In sacred spaces and transnational networks in American Sufism, Bawa Mahawadeen and contemporary shrine cultures, Marin Shobana Xavier provides a rich ethnographic account of his American followers, the Bawa Mahawadeen Fellowship, but also introduces us to his devotees in Sri Lanka, the Serendib Sufi Study Circle. The book tells us the story of Bawa's early life and career in South Asia, his travels to the United States, and the development of his spiritual communities. Xavier narrates this history from oral accounts of followers she gathered during extensive multi-sided fieldwork. Much of the book reveals the spaces and ritual activities of his contemporary followers in all their diversity. Participants come from Muslim, Christian, Hindu, and spiritual but not religious backgrounds, each with their own interpretation of Bawa's teachings and significance in the universe. Xavier's fruitful, comparative, and transnational approach forces the reader to rethink many assumptions about the character of Islam in America, how global movements connect and develop over space, and the dynamic relationship between religious leaders and their followers. In our conversation, we discuss Sufism in North America, the Sri Lankan religious landscape, the challenges of multi-sided fieldwork, Bawa's ashrams, mosque, and mazar, making pilgrimage, the role of women in the movement, the meaning behind Bawa's multiple designations and titles, and how followers engage Bawa after his death. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Marin Shobana Xavier about sacred spaces and transnational networks in American Sufism, Bawa Mahawadeen, and Contemporary Shrine Cultures, published with Bloomsbury in 2018. Welcome, Shobana. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies, not as our host, but as our guest today, which we're very excited about. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about this this project. I think you're doing really uh, interesting and innovative stuff in terms of kind of transnational research, um, thinking about where uh, Asian traditions and how they're implemented in America and kind of issues of race and, and, and cultural identity and how these things uh, play out. And uh, I'm excited for others to also to get their hands on this book. Um, we always, of course, start with a little bit about you. So what made you the scholar you are today? Who have been the influential people or uh, texts that have shaped you uh, in your approach, in the content that you explore? Uh, how did you get where you are? Um, that's a great question. Um... I think a lot of it has been um, through interest in Sufism. I took an Islamic mysticism course in undergrad at York University. It was a course that I took accidentally, actually, and the professor was Emila Butrovic, and um, she was immensely influential in kind of introducing me to Sufism, especially the textual and poetic traditions of it. Um, we also did a little bit of contemporary context there, and it was in that class that I was first exposed to 
Muhammad Rahim Baal Muhayyadeen, who I end up writing about in this book. Um, and there, you know, from that stage, as I was doing a lot of research, I was um, reading Anne-Marie Schimmel's book, who has been very influential for me, especially her South Asian context. Um, from there, you know, going to Carl Ernst, all these very immensely important personalities for the study of classical Sufism. Um, when I arrived at Wilfrid Laurier, where I did my PhD, uh, Professor uh, Mina Sharifi Funk was um, very, very instrumental in kind of helping me further refine um, her, you know, my understanding of Sufism and the way that she trained me to understand Sufism, both its classical and metaphysical context, um, especially through figures like Ibn al-Arabi and also the lived traditions. Um, so a lot of the work and a lot of what you see has really resonated from these uh, mentors that I've had, both female mentors, um, especially my PhD supervisor at Wilfrid Laurier. That's great. Now, uh, can you talk a little bit about how this project emerged, uh, perhaps through some of your your, your work uh, on your dissertation? Yeah, um, I mean, this project is very fascinating because uh, so much of it is intertwined with my own personal story, which I write a little bit about in the acknowledgments, but it was really hard to do because I tend to be quite private. And so it's one of these moments where should I tell the story or should I not? And I felt that I had this kind of sense of responsibility to be transparent to the readers. Um, so as I was saying, this project emerged because I was exposed to the figure of Muhammad Rahim Baba Muhaideen in the Islamic mysticism course I took as an undergrad at York. And at that time, I just started kind of looking into it. I had emailed members of the community. I'd gone and met uh, one of the branches or gone to a meeting in Toronto. Um, and from there, it was kind of very interesting. And initially, I had thought about doing um, work on it for my master's at the time with Professor Butrovich, but uh, there wasn't really that much work done on it. And it was a one-year master's program, so it didn't really quite seem feasible at the time. Um, and so then I had thought maybe doing something about it for my PhD would be more practical. And especially just my interest initially was in the American context. The, the whole Sri Lanka side was not um, obvious to me at the time as it was now. Um, and so I had initially proposed to do something on the American context. And then um, in 2011, I was living in London. And then I had been accepted into the PhD program, which is the Religious Diversity North America program. So it was heavily North America focused, looking at all these, uh, the religious dynamics um, from mainly a contemporary context. Um, and I had gone to Sri Lanka as like my last, you know, trip before the PhD and all of this stuff. And this is the first time that I had gone to Sri Lanka since I left um, when I was five years old. And, and a lot of that was because there was a war that was brewing and, you know, our family was displaced and we came to Canada. Um, and so when I had gone to Sri Lanka, I had gone up to the north and the north was where a majority of the fighting had also happened. Um, and I had gone to see my grandfather's house. And when I went to my see my grandfather's house, um, at the time I had also um, gone to a village nearby. And that was the first time that I had noticed uh, a mosque that was on a um, the beach, and that mosque belonged to Muhammad Rahim Baba Muhayyadeen. And the only reason I recognized it is because I had seen a picture of it at the fellowship in Toronto. Um, and so that spawned this new interest, which was primarily that, you know, this community, this figure was actually far more closer in proximity in terms of my own um, origins in Sri Lanka. So then that kind of got me thinking more about the Sri Lankan context. Um, and so then when I had come to back to Toronto from um, that trip and started my PhD at Waterloo, I had that at the back of my mind. Um, there was some resistance in the program since it was meant to be, uh, you know, a project on a North American context. And so pushing it to look at a transnational context was not something that a lot of, 
maybe uh, faculty members were receptive, receptive to at the time. Um, but the case that I kind of made was that if you look at studies of Buddhism in America, there's a lot of shifts that were asking to look at the transnational out of necessity, because that's where Buddhism in America, the scholarship had been at that point. And so um, since I was reading a lot of that literature, and we had a lot of amazing scholars who worked on that in our program, I also kind of made a parallel suggestion for that for Sufism. But at the time, and I think still now to a little bit, but it's changing, um, Sufism in America as being a kind of a feel that's really in its infancy was not thinking in that way. So there was a lot of resistance. And I think um, it was a little bit of a struggle. But once I started doing the project and the kind of the dynamics of this particular community, everything just seemed so obvious to me. Um, And it worked out. So um, because it worked out, it was great. It could have also failed. Um, But that was kind of the whole impetus um, or the backstory of how this project emerged. And so this is what I ended up writing on for my dissertation was kind of the transnational because I occupied the transnational myself. Um, But then uh, the community and also Bawa Muhaideen, who ended up writing about also occupied the transnational. So I think because of that and because of that kind of intimate reality that the project and myself and the figure of this community all shared, it ended up being that kind of a project. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing project. And uh, your kind of intersecting uh, points of interest are really interesting. Uh, you, you mentioned somewhere, I forget exactly how you phrase it, but uh, that one of the, the followers uh, said something like, of course, you are the one doing the research on this or something like that. Yeah. It almost does seem like uh, too too kind of good to be true in terms of uh, bringing this all to fruition. Right. Uh, um, perhaps you could um, kind of help us think about uh, this central figure, uh, which all your communities that you're looking at kind of revolve around, um, Bawa uh, Mahatdin. Um, who was he? Uh, what were some of the social contexts in which he lived? Um, and and where, where do you think we should start in thinking about kind of his life and, and journey to America? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And I think that exact question is what prompted this in, entire project and iterations of this project. Um, you know, truthfully, the more that I asked this question of who Bawa Muhaideen is, the more confused I got, because there are narratives, right? I think with kind of um, holy figures, there's always a tendency for these narratives or hagiographies, as we say in religious studies. Um, and they kind of are take on different variations and they evolve op- over time. And even though this figure was relatively recent. I mean, he died in 1986. That much we know. Um, He's entombed in Coatesville, Pennsylvania. That much we know. But if we were to go back and try to kind of understand his origins, it gets quite complicated. Um, So when I went to Jaffna, where his first community originated, and this is in northern Sri Lanka, and I asked, you know, the earliest or the oldest generation that were still alive of his early followers, um, they would mostly say that he kind of appeared from the jungles one day. And that's it, right? Um, and so Frank Coram, who's done more of the historical work on this, he also did something similar. And he kind of did say, you know, try to date it. Some were dating him to the late 1800s. So it would have made him well over 100 when he had died in 1986. Others were dating him from the 40s, the 1940s. Um, there is some sense, and I would probably agree, that he likely came from southern India because um, his Tamil, his dialect is of a particular kind. And so even though, you know, in South India and in Sri Lanka, um, some people do speak Tamils. There is like variations in accents. Um, and so the initial Tamil people in, in Sri Lanka, when they first encountered him, couldn't quite understand 
understand his Tamil. So there's a sense that maybe because of that, he was coming from a different part of um, like Tamil Nadu. Um, so he appeared and the first place that he was cited and or found is um, in Kataragama, which is a pilgrimage site in Sri Lanka. It's kind of in central Sri Lanka and it's shared by both Hindus, uh, uh, Muslims, and also Buddhists. So there's kind of respective spaces in there. Um, and he was kind of found meditating there. And then two Hindu pilgrims reputedly had encountered him um, and they had asked him to come up to the north, which would have been maybe like a nine hour trek or um, no, actually walk walking would have been much longer. But if you drive today, it would have probably be about nine, 10 hours, something like that. Um, and so he had initially said no, um, and he told them to go ahead and that he'd come later, which apparently he did. So he did come from kind of this further south up to the north. And once he came, he stayed with these two Hindu pilgrims and he stayed in kind of like a hut in their rural village. And over kind of the next few period years, he um, bought like an ashram, but it was mainly like a, a place like this Dutch warehouse that had been um, this warehouse that was used by maybe Dutch settlers um, that had been fallen apart and he bought it and kind of fixed it and all of this stuff. So we're thinking likely this is the the 40s, um, 50s, 1940s, 1950s. And from there, he slowly started getting kind of visitors. And most of the visitors initially were uh, Tamil Hindus. And some of them were just looking for a healer. Um, in Sri Lanka, actually, he was well known for his healing abilities and his exorcisms. That was his specialty. And so people who had kind of issues or ailments would go to him and he would give them kind of um, uh, cures. And um, and so some of this would have been Ayurvedic. Others would have been performances of kind of mystical, magical feats, if you want to describe it that way. And then after this Process, he'd also slowly started giving a little discourses. Um, and then this is how his kind of fame eventually grew. And the frame kind of spread across Sri Lanka. And then you know, over time, it's like starts attracting many different religious communities, um, though the predominantly most of them are Hindus. You have also Muslims who are from other regions in Sri Lanka also coming to see him as well. And so he starts cultivating kind of this very religiously pluralistic community. Um, and then he starts shifting from the north, which is predominantly rural-based. Um, you know, he had a farm there. He was practicing vegetarianism. There was an ashram there, right? Um, and then a group of Muslims called him to Colombo, which is the capital city, which is kind of further south. And there he was kind of not doing so much of the work of like exorcisms. Um, he was more teaching, you know, theology or philosophy. They were more inclined towards kind of the intellect in some capacities because these were educated, high individuals who are from a higher social economic class. And so this, again, he's kind of tending to diverse um, needs of different communities. And from here, um, in 1971, he gets invited by a Sri Lankan graduate student who's at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and he from Sri Lanka had gone to America and had known Bawa in Sri Lanka, had invited him to come to Philadelphia. And his logic for inviting Bawa to come to Philadelphia was because of kind of the racial unrest that was happening and unfolding in Philly at the time. We're talking about post-Malcolm X, right? Um, and and at the same time, there was another one of his, you know, um, I think he also knew somebody. So this is Mohammed Roof. And Mohammed Roof knew somebody by the name of Carolyn Andrews, who would go on to be the executive secretary who just died a few days ago, actually. So this, you know, it's all quite recent. Um, she also had this kind of mystical experience. 
and in this mystical experience, she kind of had, you know, um, she experienced oneness. It was quite dramatic. She was trying to find somebody to interpret. And Muhammad Maruf also had known her and said, you know, maybe you should um, talk to my teacher, Bawa Muhaideen, which she did, and she wrote, wrote letters to him, and so they would be translated and sent to Bawa. So both Muhammad Maruf and Carolyn Andrews joined forces together. Um, they approached different communities. You know, I was told that they even approached the Moorish Science Temple at one point to try to get sponsorship, but eventually they approached a yoga group. Um, that was running in Philadelphia, who helped kind of accumulate the signatures. And that yoga group formalized them to create an organization for visa purposes and created the Bao Mohaidin Fellowship. And that resulted in them being able to sponsor Bao as a visit, which is just meant to be a visit to come to um, Philadelphia in 1971 in October. So he showed up with a kind of a small group of entourage of his Sri Lankan community, um, came to Philadelphia, went to a row house, which was essentially Mohammed Maruf's house, and he discoursed for the first time. And of course, Bawa spoke no, uh, no English at all. So everything was in Tamil. Um, he'd have translators. And so this is essentially what spawned or creates this movement that I talk about from this moment from 1971. He comes to America, but he goes back essentially from 1971 to 1986 when he dies. He goes to Sri Lanka, takes care of the Sri Lankan community, comes and spends a couple of years in Philadelphia, tends to his Philadelphia, but then also other communities he's creating in Canada and America. And then so creates this kind of transnational movement, tends to them in separate ways, in distinct ways. And this is what I um, kind of look at what's happened. And so who is Bawa? Um, I mean, he seems like a pretty epic human being in many ways to cultivate such a, a dramatic, you know, different cultural context, you know, from the context of America, where he's having members who are from the Nation of Islam come and approach him, uh, from the context where he's engaging with those who, you know, quote unquote, were part of the hippie movement, uh, the spiritual awakening, or uh, people who are dealing with that. So some people were leaving the Hare Krishna movements, and others were doing the living in Woodstock or part of the psychedelic drugs. And then he's going to Sri Lanka, where there is essentially an ethnic a conflict that's brewing that's going to lead to a, a full-out civil war and he's trying to figure out how to get people to work together and transcend the fact that you know maybe this because you speak this language or that language it shouldn't mean that you're different so he's having visitors from the you know presidents who are coming and visiting him and asking him for advice so in many ways the humanness of this person is quite fascinating that he was able to cultivate and like tend to both of these contacts without speaking any English, you know, um, having a spiritual message, which he defines sometimes as Sufism, sometimes as Islam, but tended to a lot of individuals who are Hindus, Christians, Jews, Muslim, everything in between, right? Um, so that's kind of the fascinating question, who is Bawa? And I just, at the end of the day, think well, he's a really great teacher, right? Because most great teachers are able to figure out what their, who their audiences are and take care of their students. Um, but if you ask members of the community, they would say that he was the perfected being. He was, you know, the the second light after the Prophet Muhammad. So it really kind of depends ultimately on which level we're talking about, the mystical bawa, the the human bawa, you know, the bawa whose body is in Coatesville. It's uh, it's an amazing story. And I, I should note um, for people who haven't looked at the book that uh, much of this narrative that you are, are able to construct is because of all the um, kind of the oral history that you've gathered. And um, that, that kind of um, leads me into uh, thinking about your field work, which is uh, much of what this book is about, is about being with people who are um, followers of, of Bawa today. So um, can you talk a little bit about um, 
how you approach your field experience, um, some of the, the primary sites that you were at, and um, some of the challenges you faced uh, in this kind of multi-sided project? Yeah, um, I think field work for this is probably one of the most challenging aspects um, of the book. Um, because as I've been talking about all these, you know, this transnational context, I spent time in Sri Lanka. And in Sri Lanka, there's multiple sites as well. There's the, the northern sh- uh, site, which where Bao's ashram is, and also a place called Mankabam, which is just kind of across the causeway and a little island off uh, the north northern coast of Sri Lanka. Um, so those were two important sites. And I chose to focus on them primarily because they were the most active during my field's work. And there was a lot of Hindu uh, devotees that were still there, which fascinated me. There's also a Colombo site as well, and that's the capital city in Sri Lanka, where it's predominantly it's just a center out of somebody's house, and they'd have weekly meetings. Um, and there is a site in um, in Matala as well, which I only did visited once, and I kind of mentioned in passing. But because again, to have multiple sites in one context was a lot. I had to kind of figure out which one I needed to focus on. So those were kind of the main ones in in Sri Lanka, and then in America, of course, Philadelphia was the main focus because that's like you could call the headquarters in in Philly, where Bawa lived, and so some people call it Bawa's ashram in Philadelphia. That's where he lived. That's where the house ended up being, um, and then they built the mosque that's attached to it as well. And then he's buried in Coatesville, which is about an hour west of Philadelphia. So I spent a lot of time in Coatesville, which is more in kind of, you know, Amish, Mennonite farm country, rolling hills. It's very kind of scenic when you're driving through rolling hills and passing horses and buggies and you end up at like this building, which is a mausoleum, a mazar that almost looks like a very, you know, a little tiny piece of the Taj Mahal, right? In Coatesville, Pennsylvania. Um, And then I spent some time in other small cities where there were lots of members of the fellowship. And so they have a branch so there's a branch in Toronto. Um, since I'm originally from Toronto, I spent a lot of time with the members in Toronto. And then uh, there's also retreats that used to take place in Philadelphia. So there were multiple sites and I was not able to cover all of the sites. Um, and so I tried to visit as many people as I possibly could have. I traveled with people who were going on pilgrimages to Sri Lanka as well. That was another way in which I did that. Um, so essentially, I spent time with people um, in Sri Lanka. You know, everything was done in Tamil. I spoke to um, a lot of the um, individuals there. And the challenge is really, I think, is the movement component, right? I mean, you move physically, um, and so there's disorientation in that consistently. Um, but you also are, as an ethnographer, you're constantly being read. So as much as you're trying to read the people that you're engaging with or your interlocutors, you're also being read consistently. And so the way that people read you will be the way in which they choose to engage with you, right? So when you think about it that way, when you're kind of transversing these multiple sites across these two continents, one can, uh, two countries or regions, um, you know, your gender component becomes a reality, your national or ethnic, or in my case, you know, linguistic components becomes an identity. If I'm a member of the diaspora and I'm in Sri Lanka, that becomes a component. So I write a little bit about how I had to constantly negotiate and I had to play this idea of being an insider and outsider perpetually. And I think in religious studies, we talk a lot about being an insider and outsider based on our religious orientation. But I think for me, in this case, it was not just religious orientation. And in fact, the religious orientation was the least problematic, because this is a spiritual community that is very inclusive. Um, But it was the other components, it was the gender component, it was the ethnicity component, it was the national, you know, um, all these other components. Um, And so doing that was very hard. So there were moments in, in time when as a female, 
know I was not allowed in particular spaces, um, which was in some ways great because then I told a story from the perspective of what I could access, right? And that was spaces that were predominantly um, um, occupied or utilized by women, right? So I got a lot of women's perspective in it. And I think a male who would have done this uh, research may not have had access to that. Um, Because I'm also Tamil and someone who's from Sri Lanka and is part of the diaspora, um, when I went to Jaffna, um, I was immediately treated as someone who was local. So the ashram in Jaffna, which is tended to by a female, and I call her the matron in this book she had me at the back of the kitchen cutting vegetables because she just assumed that in that that's how you would treat somebody i wasn't seen as a visitor i was seen as a local initially i was a little bit concerned but as most ethnographers would tell you i mean that's where the juicy data is right so here i am at the back of the kitchen squatting on the floor with a knife and not quite sure how to cut stuff um but then this is like this very raw moment where you're with another collective group of women and you're just kind of casually trying to figure each other out and then in the boundary breaks and you're able to kind of collect data that you would never would in a kind of a semi-structured interview or maybe a male or someone other with somebody else with other identities. Um, so the movement and accessibility issues are often very precarious for me. Politics were precarious for me because as a member of a diaspora, as someone who's Tamil coming to Sri Lanka, governmentally you're often seen that's problematic. Um, so there were many times that I was thought, they, they thought I was a journalist here to document the plight of the Tamil community or uh, oppressions or problems by the Sri Lankan government, which could also result in horrible situations for me. Um, and so that was something that I had to navigate. Some interviews were interviews I could not record because I didn't want to endanger anybody in my co- in, in my community of research as well. So there were a lot of perpetual things, whereas when I went to America, none of this was an issue. I wasn't on guard for my life, or but there were other things that were going on, you know, um, in terms of the American context as well, right? Race issues within the lost community um but then i was treated as someone who was an insider because i was sri lankan and i had access to tamil that a lot of people in the community didn't so i got levels of accessibility in philadelphia that i also did not imagine but which was something again that was part of my identity so i think a lot of the movement and the precarity of just being who i was and not being able to change any of that was a very fascinating and sometimes very exhausting experience for me um so i'm glad that i was able to kind of just go with the flow but there were moments that were extremely stressful or moments that were a little bit dangerous in Sri Lanka, more so than the American context, um, uh, which was challenging. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Now, uh, it's hard to know where to go because there's so many interesting bits here and uh, it's it's hard to fit it all in. But um, I I guess many people will will probably know Boa from his American context. Right. Um, So perhaps you can... Uh, place him within the kind of American religious landscape, and and I guess where where does your project kind of uh, add to or kind of amend scholarship on American Sufism? Yeah, um, so. So Bao was an interesting figure in the context of American religious landscape and also in the context of American Islam um, and American Sufism. So Bao is coming to um, Philadelphia or America in 1971. And so this is kind of at the, the verge in which there's a lot of um, religious, fascinating movements that are happening in terms of a lot of other religious communities or that are being transplanted. So let's say Buddhism, uh, you know, uh, there's elements of uh, Hinduism and Sikhism. So all these religious traditions that are being kind of brought into the American context because of kind of these traditions as being part of the exotic East, quote unquote, right? Um, 
And then so you have living personalities um, and leaders that are coming from countries that are outside the, the U.S. who are seen as authoritative figures who can disseminate these traditions to communities that are interested. So, you know, yoga, meditation and all this stuff. Right. So in the broad landscape, Bao is kind of part of this movement of teachers that are coming in that are disseminating traditions from like um, an authentic or authentic voice in many ways. Um, and so he fits into that. So he is speaking to other members, um, you know, uh, other Hindu gurus that are coming, other Buddhist teachers that are coming in as well. And so there is almost a sense of like, not competition per se, but, you know, it's one American audience and all these different teachers that are trying to figure out how to gain traction with these different communities, right? And so a lot of these communities are developing concurrently. Um, Bawa, in that sense, um, is using a language that is talking about, you know, equality, egalitarianism, whether it comes to race, gender, culture, and religion, right? So I think he was very focused and aware of the context of kind of the racial unrest that was particularly happening in Philadelphia. And as I had mentioned earlier, part of the reason that he was invited to come. Um, so he's also speaking to that, but he's also aware that a lot of the students that are coming to him, some are coming from kind of, you know, Nation of Islam or um, uh African-American experience, but there's a lot of people who are also coming that are identified as, you know, as hippies. And he would talk about them having long hair, living communally, doing a lot of drugs, right? And so whatever is happening in terms of the religious landscape in America in the 60s and 70s is essentially what Bawa is like kind of directly speaking to. And so he creates this kind of distinct spiritual movement in the sense that in some ways... I mean, in most ways, it is a spiritual movement. In other ways, it's a Sufi movement. But this is where the the debate really happens, right? What kind of movement it is. Um, There was a time when an interviewer came to him and asked him, well, are you you a Muslim, right? And then he was like, "Um, well, I don't know that anyone's a Muslim. I think we're all trying to be Muslims. At the same time, there was a student of his who had asked him, like, what everybody called Bawa Bawa as this kind of nickname. Um, But... One day a student had asked him, well, what does um, the first two letters of your name stand for, the MR? So he'd always write MR, Bawa, Muhayyidin. And so Bawa said, oh, it stands for Muhammad Rahim. And then the student was like, oh, that's a Muslim name. And Bawa was like, yeah, that is. Right. And so there's these moments where he's very kind of very subversive in terms of what the religious identity is and what he's participating in. So he does ask some of the students who stay on with him. There's no initiation process proper, but he does teach them, you know, the first part of the Shahada, the La ilaha illallah. They do silent meditation. They do outlier meditation that is invoking um, various, you know, Arabic litanies that people are kind of queuing into, but he's also using a lot of Tamil. He's not really saying that this is only for Muslims. And so in some ways, he's creating this kind of universal system where he's being super inclusive. But then in 1984, he goes and builds a mosque. Right. And so I think this is where it's fascinating, where he's trying to cater to the religious landscape that's immensely diverse at the time, that it's predominantly white Americans at the time who are leaving Jewish and Christian traditions. Um, In the early period in 1971, when he came, the predominant people who came to him were individuals who were African-Americans who were either part of the Moorish Science Temple or the Nation of Islam. But because of racial dynamic shifts, where kind of towards the late 70s, um, more people that are coming are... um, Americans who were predominantly white, um, the the tensions within the fellowship were seen to be a little bit too contentious that uh, some African-Americans had left because they couldn't stand being in the same space when they had different ideas of uh, 
uh, race, right, or different ideas of inclusion. Um, and so this does shift the community into being predominantly white in some capacity. Uh, and what is interesting is that in the current context, the community has shifted again post-1986 to being mainly South Asian Muslims who are immigrants or part of the broader diaspora. So I think the, the reality of the group is that it's always kind of reflected broader trends, especially globally in terms of kind of ethnic and racial orientations, and now also kind of the reality of diaspora and immigrant culture in America. And it is also patterned around what is happening in terms of religiously, at least in the Eastern Sea board regionally. And so most of the individuals who are coming into the fellowship right now in the American context are those who identify the fellowship more as an Islamic movement because they see the mosque, they see the practices. Whereas in 1971, it was not perceived in that way because it wasn't a mo- there was no mosque and many of the members were coming, were coming from an African-American context who were looking for a kind of racial justice and egalitarian space, right? So I think it really is fascinating to see the trajectory of the movement paralleled with what's happening socially at the time time in America. The, the other really uh, interesting part about the, the book and the project is that you, you do kind of uh, get this transnational perspective by also looking at what's going on in Sri Lanka. Yeah. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about uh, kind of the ritual and spiritual life in uh, Bawa's ashram uh, there. What, uh, how is this place variously interpreted by its participants? Yeah, um, so in the ashram in Jaffna, you have the predominant individuals who use the space are religiously Hindu. Um, in 1990, the militant rebel organization who was fighting for kind of uh, fighting for the nationalist cause in Sri Lanka had expelled all the Muslims in Jaffna, and they were forced to leave, and so they were internally displaced. So after this fact, for sure, the kind of remaining majority religious um, or ethnic group in Sri Lanka were predominantly Hindus. And so what is interesting is when you go to Jaffna and the ashram, the most amount of people who are there and the ones who are actually keeping Bawa spaces going are Hindu followers of Bawa, right? Because the Muslims were essentially expelled from this space. And so when you do go, you'll find that Bawa's, you know, um, any items that are associated with Bawa, so be it Bawa's bed, Bawa's beds are everywhere. It's kind of this curious thing that I still haven't figured out. I've had different interpretations when I presented at different places, but his bed is this kind of the space that has his essence or an essence of him, very similar to like maybe the role that a tomb would play. And so you see any bed that he's ever sat on or a, a chair that he sat on, kind of the central focus and ritual activity unfolds around that bed in the, same, in the sense that a lot of individuals, um, especially his Tamil Hindu followers in Sri Lanka and Jaffna particularly, go up to his bed. They may venerate it. They're circumambulated. So they go around the bed. They um, light incense and uh, wave it in front of a bed the way that you might do at a, a temple, in a Hindu temple and venerating the idols. Um, so sometimes you'll find also holy water. So there's a lot of private devotional activity that does happen. If there is any form of communal activity that happens, so such as a celebration of a maulid, uh, you know, reciting um, celebrations for the Prophet Muhammad or Abdul Qadir Jalani, which this community is loosely kind of tied to as a tariqa, um, you will find that that activity is unfolding around the bed, right? Um, and this is both men and women. So both the Bawa spaces, the ashram and Munkabam, which acts as like a mosque and also prayer space, it's called God's House, is accessible for men and women equally, um, except for when women are on their period, they're seeing that they should not be coming in. So there would be a sign on the door, but it's not, you know, at all restricted 
descriptive in terms of your caste identity, your gender identity, your religious identity, just seen as anyone could access the space at any time, essentially. Um, and so you'll see, you'll hear a lot of music that goes on. There's also kind of veneration to the Prophet Muhammad. There is the recitation of the Fatiha, um, of aspects that you would often associate with kind of Islamic ritual um, is being done by Tamil Hindus who see no problematic at all about it. And they see that as Hindus, for them to do this, it doesn't mean that they're Muslim or not. It's just part of their broader ritual or religious identity. Um, and this is quite different from what you would notice, at least at the, the main headquarters in Philadelphia. There is a bed, but you wouldn't see the lighting of incense, lighting of candles, lighting of oil lamps. These are kind of aspects that you see very much in Jaffna. And part of it is predominantly cultural, right? If you go to a church in Jaffna or if you go to a Hindu temple or a Buddhist temple, these are kind of accoutrements or religious just accoutrements that are also prevalent there. So I think the cultural context here is also very, very important to see how cultural expressions of a religion um, plays out, versus these kind of accoutrements would not play out so well, I think, in um, in the American context. But they are quite um, disorienting for American pilgrims who do come to Jaffna and see this unfold. So the incense, the, um, the lighting of the oil lamps, it's very jarring for them and they kind of are shocked. And so they treat it as holy Hindu and that's not part of who they are, especially if they see that their identity is um, with Islam, right? And so they kind of see it as this is what Bawa students do in Jaffna and so this is what it is. Um, but they are very different different kind of sometimes ritual activities that unfold um, in the Jaffna context and the Philly context. Yeah. Now, um, you, you do a great job of, of thinking about s- space and place in kind of complex ways. And I, I think this probably plays out um, the most when we're talking about the Pennsylvania context, where uh, previous scholarship has maybe looked uh, more narrowly, but you really look at kind of the dynamics of space and ha- how they're used for different purposes and uh, how they're kind of variously interpreted. Um, can, can you give us kind of a, a, an idea of what's going on in the various places in uh, Pennsylvania and and w- what they kind of mean for the different type of par- participants that are involved. So um, spaces were obviously very important to this project as an ethnographer because I was that's where I was spending a lot of my time. Um, and as I was mapping out these spaces, I noticed institutionally that the spaces in both um, the American context and the Sri Lankan context were parallel to each other. So both spaces had kind of a headquarters or an ashram of sorts, either the one in Jaffna and then the one in Philadelphia. And then both spaces had this kind of interesting um, shrine space. So the one in Coatesville, Pennsylvania, and the one in Monk which is on um, in Melanie Island that I talk about. So because there were these parallel spaces and because I was doing a comparative project to see if there was something unique about the American context, it's one of the reasons that I was so invested in space and I had spent a bulk of the book really just unpacking the things that were happening ritually and in terms of memory and in terms of narrative around these spaces. So the book is essentially structured around this as a means for me to understand um, more about American Sufism and if there are in fact things that make it American. Um, and so in terms of the space in Pennsylvania, the two spaces that I engaged with were predominantly the headquarters in Philadelphia and then the, the shrine, the Mazar in Coatesville. And I think most people have been, and particularly in the scholarly community, have been invested in the shrine in Coatesville because it is quite a distinct space in the American landscape and particularly for American Islam. It's not the first Mazar or shrine that is for Sufi saint. And most people will say that it's for Sufi Sam, who's buried in New Mexico, who 
for whom recently a new Dorka or a mausoleum has been built. And there's also uh, a mausoleum to a Sufi, an Iranian Sufi teacher in California as well, but it's part of a broader cemetery, so it's not a standalone space. And so Bawa's really is kind of the third space, but despite that, it is the one that has gained most traction. And I think Part of that has to do with its location being on the eastern seaboard, close to places like New York, New Jersey, where you have a predominant South Asian immigrant diaspora community who are Muslim and who see the space in very relatable ways. Um, And so what I essentially do is kind of map out um, these spaces and talk about who is utilizing these spaces and the movement that's unfolding. So Coatesville is quite fascinating primarily because it was always seen as a farm. So if you talk to the members of the fellowship, so many of these are members who were with Bawa from the 70s or 80s who lived with him. When they first purchased this property, this was meant to be a space for uh, a cemetery for the community because it was so expensive to bury in Philadelphia. But since the property was so big at the time, at the time it was about 50 acres. Now it's about over 100 acres. They were also farming it. And so Bawa, being a farmer, had farmed in Sri Lanka and then also taught his students to farm. And so so the members of the community and the fellowship actually call this their farm, their farm space. Some of them have bought properties. They live there. They cultivate the land. So everything is run basically on a ba- on volunteerism. Now, when Bao died in 1986, um, and they hadn't really thought about where they were going to bury him. Um, the plan was that if he had died in Jaffna, maybe they would have buried him in Munkabum, which was the space that he had built as a dedicate, dedicated to Mary or Mariam. Um, but since he died in Philadelphia and there was no really conversation conversation about this, um, they had decided that they would bury Bawa on the farm. And so the highest mount on the farm. So initially when he died, they had just taken him and buried him there. And then there was a lot of discussion, which I talk about in the book about, you know, conversations of what they should do to honor the teacher. And then so they eventually settled on building this kind of mausoleum uh, with the design of uh, the American Sufi artist, Michael Green. And then so this was built on top of the tomb, which is about 10 feet above. And it was all built by the members of the community on a volunteer basis. So it was built in like three days structurally. And then actually some of the, most of the members that climbed to the top of it and wrote their names in cement, which was kind of this unique, kind of gives you a sense of how personal and intimate of a moment this was. Now they had just built this as a mausoleum. This was private space. Um, But in kind of the 1990s, you have small tricklings of people like members from the Gujarati community who are coming to visit because they somehow hear about this, this rumor that there's a, a Mazar in, in, you know, in Coatesville, Pennsylvania. One person comes and, of course, tells 10 other people, 10 other people come. So by 1990, and we're looking about in the last two, three decades, you essentially have flocks of individuals that are coming. Initially, there was no bathroom there. There was no welcome center. So I talk a lot about kind of the early members who were taking care of the space, that they had to build bathrooms, build places for Wudu, build places so people could kind of actually come and utilize the space. So what was a private space for the fellowship community and was a farming space, a cemetery space, and kind of a place of residency for most, has now in the last few decades has transformed into this public space, which is pilgrimage. Now, you could imagine with individuals that are coming at it from very distinct ideas of what the space means, but also very similar. There are kind of cultural um, disorientations, very similar to what you would notice when American pilgrims are going to Sri Lanka and encountering Tamil Hindus. It's kind of unfolding in, in Pennsylvania as well, in Kutsu. And so a lot of, let's say, if you're 
you know, have a Gujarati, if you're from Gujarat or if you're from Pakistan or if you're um, Iranian and you come um, and you to the Mazar and you want to venerate, you want to play music, you want to light incense, spritz, rose water. I mean, for the American members who take care of this space, um, these are not okay. I mean, these are things that not should, should not be happening. So there are like now signs that are posted that this is a space that is for quiet meditation. And it is interesting talking to, having spoken to a lot of American um, to spoken to a lot of pilgrims who come, they almost are kind of uh, not freaked out, but are very uh, expressive of the fact that it's so quiet. They're not used to Mazars being so quiet. Because, you know, if you go to a Mazar in South Asia, for instance, if you go to Mazars in Sri Lanka or something like that, you know, there's there's a lot of noise or, you know, there's a lot of activity, right? It's usually a bustling place. Whereas here in Coatesville, this is a very quiet space. It's meant for silent meditation. And in one of my interlocutors often actually referred to it as a Zen space, right? I mean, this is kind of the American context we're talking about. So there is a conscious effort to make the space um an American Mazar, and that's what I talk a lot about. Um, and so you have these different cultural encounters. They're all there to see Bawa, but the ways in which they see Bawa are quite different. But in this context, it is the American members of the fellowship, some of them who are Muslims, some of them who uh, converted, and others who see their identity as being non-Muslim Sufis are there to take care of Bauer. They're the ones who are hosting individuals who are, you know, American Muslims who coming from South Asian backgrounds, who are maybe first generation or second generation immigrants who are part of the broader diaspora who are coming and encountering Bauer. So you do have a fascinating reversal and you kind of see how um, they're negotiating each other and how they're being present. Um, and some of these are very kind of disorienting. So another example I could give you is that pilgrims, um, who are immediate pilgrims, for instance, when they see a disciple of Bawa Mohaideen who sat with him, um, they often go to them and they take their hand and ask for blessing as well, which for an American disciple of Bawa is like, what are you doing? I'm not a person here. Bawa is a person here, right? So this idea of venerate, venerating immediate disciples of Bawa is also something that some pilgrims who come from South Asian contexts do, and that's also very disorienting. Um, and the fellowship in Philadelphia is, again, very similar. It is different in the sense that since it's in the core, very close to Philadelphia, um, the city center, um, you'll get a lot of of um, very diverse members who come to pray at the mosque but have no interest in Sufism or the fellowship community. They just know that it's a safe mosque, that maybe that it's not a Salafi mosque, right, uh, or Wahhabi tendencies. And so you have a lot of students who are from St. Joseph's or any of the colleges nearby who come for regular Juma prayers. You have individuals who may be part of the broader community that just come for prayers, take food on Friday and then leave. And so they're not even involved with kind of the other component. So this is why I think some people talk about the different doorways in which you could come. Some people come for the mosque, some people come for the food, some people come for Bawa. So it's one of the reasons I talk about parallelisms in the fellowship in a lot of these spaces, because a lot of people coexist in these spaces, but they come to these spaces for different reasons. And I think looking at it holistically is far more representative of the fellowship and American Sufism, as opposed to thinking about that oh, this, this pilgrim is representative of the fellowship or this individual and his idea is representative of what Bawa taught. I think collectively, um, and my understanding of it is, is more representative of what the fellowship is and represents what American you know, Sufism really is. And uh, one, one thing you've uh, mentioned already uh, is about kind of uh, gender participation, the role of women uh, in the movement, um, which uh, you are able to focus a whole chapter on and I think bring a lot of insight, um, especially in how perhaps previous scholarship has imagined kind of uh, gender egalitarianism in the American context. Um, 
an, the idea that American Islam might have some sort of unique features that aren't uh, replicated or seen in other places. Um, I, th- I think the chapter is really illuminating um, for thinking about a lot of these these kind of norms that we we, we perhaps unconsciously uh, repeat. So, um, what what did you find uh, when you were thinking about this idea of women? How how are women symbolically framed in the movement? What uh, is the role that women actually play? Um, and what what would you say is kind of the the gender dynamics in the movement? Yeah, um, I think the gender dynamic in the movement is quite complicated. And I think taking a step back and looking at it at this trajectory from Sri Lanka to America makes it even more complicated. Um, One of the things that's very unique is that in the Sri Lankan context, you have a matron, uh, a woman who's essentially in charge of the ashram to her understanding who has been tending to it um, since Bawa has left. And historically, it has always been women who are in charge of the ashram. Now, an ashram is supposed to be a place of, uh, you know, dwelling, a house. And so there obviously could be gender reinforcement of the women doing that job of taking care of a home, right? But um, that considered the fact that there is a woman and she does have a lot of authority in terms of leading a ritual. Like when I was there, she would lead the ritual. It's quite fascinating. Um, and then also to have Mankabam, which is this, um, again, this space, it's a unique space in that it's both a mosque, uh, God's house, um, a shrine of some context that was dedicated to the Virgin Mary, which has become a very complicated space in the fellowship now because it's changed a lot since I did my research. Um, that was also dedicated to Mary, which in Sufi context is seen as kind of the highest feminine. Um, and so men and women are have accessibility into this space where a lot of mosques in Sri Lanka, women do not have accessibility into it. So that for me initially kind of got this um, piqued my interest of like, well, what is the space dedicated to this holy figure? Why is this female woman, you know, female leader leading these rituals? How is this amazing? Um, and how is this kind of distinct from what's happening in Philadelphia? In the Philadelphia context, what was very interesting when I found tendencies towards being more conservative in some ways was the gender dynamic of um, how women and the positionality of women said something about Islam or non-Islam. And this is what I talk a lot about in that chapter, where both insiders to the community and outsiders to the community, and this has historically been proven, would often use the body of a woman to either legitimize legitimize or um, um, call out the community, right? And so, for instance, when they were building the mosque in Philadelphia, um, initially when the community started praying, they started praying in, in Colombo and the women were the ones who were leading in prayer, both men and women. So it was actually uh, um, Mariam Kabir, who is an American Jewish convert to Islam, who started leading and teaching everybody the prayers. Um, Then she stopped, primarily because she was on her period, and then her husband at the time had taken over and then led the prayers. So that happened in Colombo, and then they came to Philadelphia, the collective, and they decided that they needed a mosque, and so this resulted in the building of the mosque in 1984. But when that building process unfolded, despite the fact that women were the forefront of not only starting the prayers in the community, but also constructing the space, um, there was this question of where should the women be for prayers? And a lot of the women wanted it to be egalitarian, so men and women side by side. Um, But it so ended up happening of the structure that the women were going to be behind the men. And when the idea of partition came up, that became another point of contention contention because, you know, what kind of partition? um, They agreed upon a laced one, and so that it's, you know, easily removable and it's not um, definitive as a wall or a separate room would be. But these all aspects became a huge political 
political issue, especially because the women were so involved in the fellowship, women had easy accessibility to Bawa consistently. So the idea of the mosque being constructed became precarious, especially for the positionality of women. Um, and so this is an ongoing debate. But of course, none of this really happened in Jaffna and Sri Lanka because there was no form, there was a mosque that was built. But when you go into there, it's not used as a mosque so much as a shrine or a prayer hall. And usually when people do congregate, men and women sit side by side just in separate blocks, right? Um, and the idea of a woman leading prayers was obviously not something that was going to be brought up according to the American context, but you have someone like the matron in Jaffna doing some of that stuff, standing in front of the, the community, leading prayers, doing a lot of the ritual activities, right? And so I think this is when I started noticing kind of the immense politics around it. And a lot of it, it was that the fellowship in, in America and Philadelphia had the struggle of being seen as a legitimate Islamic community, right? And Bauer was also concerned with that. And he said that, you know, if, if women don't sit behind the men or if women lead the prayers, then people won't see us as like, you know, a Muslim community, which also kind of is an interesting insight into the context of Bawa himself. You know, why did he not subvert all of that? There was a potential potentiality to subvert it. He built, you know, this um, shrine dedicated to Mary in Jaffna. Um, how did that not translate into the American context? Why was the body of the women far more contentious? Um, and so you have some of these kind of complexities that are unfolding, which I don't think I resolve fully, because at the end of the day, I would have to maybe ask the actual charismatic leader of the community to be like, hey, why did you do what you did, right? So I'm getting a lot of um, interpretations from different members of the community who have different interpretations. So there are a lot of these issues that still unfold. And depending on who you speak to in the community, they will give you different perspectives. There are many people who go, many women who go and pray in, in the mosque and are happy to do and some don't. Many women pray in Bao's room um, and they're okay with that, right? Um, the issue of veiling is sometimes brought up, especially the idea that some um, need to, some women tell other women to veil, right? So a lot of it comes down to, well, the living figure is not there anymore. There's been certain directives that have been interpreted and are being set forth. Now, how do you go forth and mandate it? And where do the different community members actually align, right? Do they take kind of a universal approach to it or not? So, but for me, I think looking at the broader trajectory from Sri Lanka to America, I noticed that the American tendencies towards certain practices around gender were more restrictive than what I noticed, noticed in Jaffna, right? Um, and so that was kind of the, uh, the inversion that you're noting, where uh, usually in the American context, a lot of people talk about gender egalitarianism in religious spaces, especially in uh, transplanted communities or immigrant communities, right, where there's more freedom because it's America, right? There's more egalitarianism because it's America. Whereas here, you're actually, I was noticing more tendencies towards movement for women in the Sri Lankan context than I was in the, Sri Lan uh, in the American context, right? Um, so, yeah. And this uh, this idea that there's these kind of various interpretations uh, leads into the the last kind of full chapter that you have, where you you talk about the the, the many ways that um, followers of Bawa kind of uh, imagine him, all, all kind of around this idea of kind of a universal. A kind of timeless teacher in a way. Mm -hmm. um, but what wh what are some of the meanings behind uh, Bawa's various designations and uh, how, how do his different followers envision him after his death? Yeah, um, I think 
This is a very, very important question. And this is a question that really defines the community in many ways, because regardless of where any of the members stand on what the fellowship or the Serendip Sufi study circle in Sri Lanka is, if it's a Muslim community, if it's a Sufi community, if it's a universal community, everybody is in agreement that the center is Bawa. But then even that, at that point, it falls down because everybody has a different interpretation of who that Bawa was, right? And this is why the last chapter, instead of doing a historical historical account of him because it, for me it felt impossible um, to do kind of this you know figure out the dates and times and all of this I wanted to talk more about the metaphysical reality of who Bawa has come and his legacy because fundamentally that is what remains at the moment right because there was no successor appointed to the fellowship and so if you go to the fellowship or the Sandrup Sufi circle now all of these spaces continue to live on the the idea that Bawa's presence imbues these spaces and Bawa it resides continually and for world perpetually be Bawa, right? Um, and so in many ways, you have this notion of sainthood and Sufism that is somewhat um, the same, but then you have, you know, classifications within sainthood and uh, there's hierarchies. And so Bawa is seen as one of the the most highest and one of the most important ones, um, or the Kutub or the axial pole of the universe. And in different Sufi traditions, there's different interpretations of how these manifest, but some, some believe that there has to be at least one that resides at any era, right? And some of the highest, most important Sufi figures that have existed in classical periods are understood to have been Qutubs. So Ibn al-Arabi, um, Abdul Qadir al-Jalani, right? These are individuals who are seen as the most important people of those times and the, these central figures. And so many people view Bawa as this figure. There's also this other idea that they view Bawa as um, this universal essence um, or essence or um that existed from the beginning of time. So this is where I get this timelessness from that, you know, some people have this notion that when existence came into manifestation, there was the first light of which Bao kind of talks about the first primal light and this first primal light really borrowing a lot from Neoplatonism and kind of this notion of emanation theory. The first primal light would be um, in an Islamic context for Sufis would be Prophet Muhammad. And from that emanates these other these other lights, right? Um, in Shia context, this is often understood sometimes to be the emanations of the imams, right? So Ali and so forth. In some Sufi context, for Bawa at least, um, you know, it could be some other saints, but for disciples of Bawa and followers of Bawa, they would understand him as to be the Qutub, the second emanation of that primal light, which is Muhammad. Um, and so here you have this tradition where it becomes very, very mystical and very cosmological, very fast, right? And so this is the tradition that then a lot of people build on. Now, there are many individuals within the fellowship community who don't uh, use a language of, um, you know, Islam, Islamic mysticism per se. So they use the language of like consciousness or universal consciousness. So instead of using the idea of primal light or a kutu, they will talk about consciousness as an all-pervading entity that has existed since the beginning of time. And so Bao is really part of that consciousness that existed from the beginning of time and that will exist at the end of time, right? So this is where it gets quite intense quite fast. And so um, what I did was I interviewed as many people as I possibly could and tried to get as many kind of categories that they were using 
utilizing and then try to kind of essentially capture that and then link that with one of our central teachings, which I think all of my interlocutors were in some ways uh, playing with, which is the the insan al-kamal or the perfected human being. So Bao's, one of his central teachings was this idea that we um, as human beings have the capacity to perfect ourselves and that perfection comes from, you know, meditation, the recitation, you know, the the, uh, the, the term and different uh, recitations and focusing of God, fasting and all of this stuff and following ritual law. Um, so he encouraged all of his students to achieve that level of perfection, just like the Prophet Muhammad was perfect, just like Jesus is perfect, just like all the other prophetic and holy figures were. Now, that was the central teaching and that was the goal that he wanted all of his students to achieve. And so some people, I think, in Sufi traditions said that this goal was often restrictive and not accessible to everybody. But with Bao's, my understanding of Bao's teaching, it seems like he was saying that it was accessible to everybody. So those are this is what the students were wanting to achieve. And so the students also understood Bao as that perfected human being, the one that had achieved that level of perfection. So this is what makes him such an accessible and still existing figure. So they talk about the bodily death of Bao, but when they go to the Mazar, and you don't have to go to the Mazar, according to some of the individuals that I spoke to, Bao could be accessible at any moment, at any time. It doesn't need to be spatially bound. It doesn't need to be bound by time because he's timeless, he's spaceless. So a lot of the language around Bawa as uh, you know, universal consciousness, as an entity that existed from the beginning of time, is a way in which they relate to him and is a way in which they see him. So it doesn't really matter what Bawa was or the physical form of him anymore and or the fact that he's buried in Kutsuwa, right? Um, and it matters is that he is existing um, at this moment. I don't know if that makes sense. Makes it makes loads of sense. Yeah. The the whole book is is really wonderful, and I, I hope other people will uh, pick it up. I hope that uh, the publisher will make it a nice, uh, inexpensive yes. <laughs> paperback, so we can perhaps use it in classes for those of us who teach. Yes. Um. um is there is there any kind of final conclusions you want to uh, bring in that we weren't able to cover yet? Um, no, I'm, I think it's. Um, I, <laughs> I think I spoke a lot, and um, I'm very grateful that you have uh, given the opportunity to talk more about my book. And I'm really grateful for your kind words about the book. So that means a oh, lot. Thank that, you. That's nice of you to say. Yeah. yeah there, of course, there there are loads of other things uh, that people can dive deep uh, with the text themselves. Um, before we let you go, though, uh, can you please tell us some of the things you're working on now that um, your fans can uh, look forward to in the future? Oh, um, my fans, that sounds great. Uh, I don't think I have any, but um, so some of the things I'm working on now, I'm working on two kind of projects that are really spinning off from this uh, particular project and another project that I worked on with some um, collaborators. Um, and one is I'm doing a, um, an ethnography of Sufism in Toronto. Um, and this really developed in conversation with um, a colleague of mine, William Rory Dixon, who also writes on Sufism in America. We were having a lot of conversation about Sufism in Canada. And so we're trying to do that to see if there's any distinction between American Sufism and Canadian Sufism. Um, and so I'm kind of doing a focused research and interviewing Sufi leaders um, in Toronto. And so that's an ongoing project. And the other project that is probably going to take a little bit longer, maybe even a lifetime, um, but it's more of a project that's focused on Sufism in Sri Lanka. So that's kind of the dream project. And so this summer, I actually went to Sri Lanka and I was documenting Sufi shrines. So I'm looking at the ways in which Sufi shrines are um, 
are placed in Sri Lanka at the moment, especially as it's embedded between kind of anti-Sufism that's um, that's on the rise in Sri Lanka, which is unfortunate, and also um, um, anti-Muslim sentiments or Islamophobia that's also on the rise from non-Muslim contexts. So being a Buddhist nation um, and kind of the Islamophobic tendencies that are coming forth right now, what that means for Sufi spaces. So those are kind of the two projects that will keep me busy, I think, for the next little while. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, yeah. well good luck, and we look forward to... Uh to reading all your work. Thank you so much. And listening to all your future podcasts. (laughs) Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Marin Chobana Xavier about sacred spaces and transnational networks in American Sufism, Bawa Mahawadeen, and contemporary shrine cultures, published with Bloomsbury in 2018. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. I hope you'll catch us next time.